What's really going on in the heads and hearts of the humans around you? I'm Mads Grummet, journalist, entrepreneur and startup investor. And I'm Sabina Reid, psychologist, speaker and media commentator. And this is Human Cogs, a podcast about the universal experiences that really matter and the candid conversations we need to have to share them. If you like Human Cogs, we'd love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. That way we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well. I don't know about you, but lately I've been struggling with the state of the world at large. Wars and violence rage, hate and abuse can fill our social media feeds, and an escalation of ideological conflict is causing uncertainty and division in our politics, in our communities, and at our dinner tables. It can make you lose a little faith in the world, wonder if humanity will be okay, whether we can actually save ourselves from ourselves. Until you remember that there are stories of hope and love and life and survival everywhere if you make the time to seek them out. Today's episode is a story that will restore your faith and fill your cup. It's the unforgettable story of Mira Unreich, who one fine spring day in 1945 was freed from a concentration camp in Germany and found herself alive under blue skies against all odds. She'd survived four death camps, including Auschwitz, and a death march, all with a song in her voice. And in the decades that followed her release, she never explained the mystery underpinning her extraordinary survival and why the Holocaust's greatest lesson for her, despite unimaginable horror, was experiencing the innate goodness of people. When Mira's journalist daughter, Rochelle Unreich, many decades later, realised time was running out for her mother, who was then in her final weeks of terminal cancer, she decided to sit down and finally ask her mother some questions. It would be the most important interview of her life, a chance to discover the secret to her mother's boundless optimism, the sliding doors of fate and chance, how love and grief can run as deep as the years and how the past and present weave a powerful and indelible connection between a mother and child, even when they're gone. Heartfelt thanks to Rochelle and, of course, to Mira for sharing this remarkable story. I hope this episode leaves you feeling a little bit better about the world right now. Here's our conversation with Rochelle. Rochelle... Thank you for joining us to chat today about the very big story that is both your story but that of your family and probably many other families um, who have lived through the extraordinary history that, that you carry in your blood. The story in the book you've written, it sweeps across time and history and the Holocaust, but it's mainly the story of the love between a mother and a daughter. Tell us about your mother. What was your relationship like? I think that's exactly right. To me, this book is a love letter to my mother and I loved her so deeply and felt her loss so strongly after she died less than 70 years ago that I just needed to do something with all that emotion, feeling really lost. So words have always meant a lot to me. It's where I go to for refuge whenever I'm feeling a deep emotion and Putting it down on paper was something that really helped. 
Mm. So what was your relationship? You're talking about the grief and grief is the flip side of love. What was your relationship like with your mum? She was an incredibly buoyant, fabulous mother. And I think I only came to realise how good a mother she was in segments. So when I had my own children and I started singing to them, I realised how many lullabies she sang to me, how often she would wake up in the morning with a song in her voice already, how comforting she was, how she listened. It was often by comparison to my friends and their experience that I realised how evolved she was. So, you know, sometimes as I think daughters do, I'd go to her and I'd say, you know, this conversation we had 20 years ago, I really wish that you hadn't said so-and-so. And she'd always just listen and say, yes, you're right. I'm really sorry about that. She was just so, I think, incredibly evolved in that way. Mm. But she was cheerful. She was independent. She was incredibly supportive of me as an independent woman. I remember growing up when people said, what are you going to do when you grow up? She, her, she would pipe up and say, go to university. It was really important to her that I be educated, that I stand on my own two feet. One of her catch cries was, there's no such words as I can't. And she didn't coddle me, but she really gave me wings to soar. Mm. You say your mum had a song in her voice and, of course, she grew up in a house of song in a brilliant life. Um, her early life is detailed where they, the family goes to see musicals and theatre and they come back and out of all their bedrooms they start to sing and harmonise together and go to sleep with those sounds, which is such a beautiful, richly imagined image I think part of this book is it is this her story and her family's comes to life so well that music is that's something obviously it was part of your childhood growing up um this, this idea of a song in the voice and a song to carry you through what were some of the songs that she used to sing to you well she did have a really sing-songy voice just on its own so my old answering machine is full of her saying hello Rahi, how are you today <laughs> that's how she would talk to me in the morning but she sang uh, an Yves Montan song, Amour, Moshe, Amour. I'm probably butchering the pronunciation, but she sang that to me as a lullaby. She was always singing Doris Day's K Sarah Sarah. And she just would hum things, make up ditties out of nothing. She, she loved to sing and she was a really good singer as well. I, I did not inherit that gene, but she spoke with that story you mentioned, she spoke of her family singing and often doing so on Friday nights for their Sabbath dinners. And her brothers had these incredibly operatic voices and her father too. And she said that the... I, I loved how she described it. She said the walls were trembling with their sound. Just this... She really evoked this feeling of emotion through their song and feeling and history because they would sing... Jewish hymns and prayers on a Friday night. And there is something visceral, you know, when you hear a song that's so powerful and passionate. Mm. You also said that she wanted you to be an independent woman and she wanted you to have an education. Where did that dream come from? Well, certainly she stopped going to school when she was 12, when Jewish people weren't allowed to go to school anymore in her town. And so that's when her education stopped. 
Despite that, she was incredibly well self-educated. She spoke seven languages fluently and she was a voracious reader. So I remember even going to see Notre Dame in France with her where she'd lived in Paris for 10 years and she had read the original uh, book about Notre Dame in its original French. So she just was, she loved to learn. I always used to say that if she hadn't been through her experiences, she would have been running a company one day. But I think when you've had everything pulled away from you, you really understand the importance of being self-sufficient and independent. The book, we probably need to provide a bit of context actually to, to what your mother lived through and, and is born from. Um, can you describe for us a little of the early childhood years of your mother before, before the war? Sure. So my mother was born in Slovakia in a tiny little town in 1927. And it was this idyllic childhood that she described for me where everyone in this village knew each other and the Jewish community were really integrated with everybody else and respected. Her parents owned a haberdashery business and all the children, five children, all worked within the store and helped out at home. And she spoke about the sports they did in winter, going tobogganing and ice skating and in summer playing. She just really had a feeling of strong community and within that a strong feeling of Judaism they weren't as observant as some families it was a fairly I guess you'd say progressive Jewish community in that town but they certainly observed the holidays and all the main rituals but let's say her mother didn't wear a shaitel which was a marriage wig and they lived as people integrated into that community so happily and then, of course, by 1939, World War II broke out and then everything changed for Jews in Eastern Europe and in Europe and especially for my mother's family. Mm, and we won't, of course, give away too much detail of what occurred, um, but it's a really confronting and, and devastating account uh, that you've written of of what happens in her family and in the ensuing years. In the book, you detail your own birth story as well. And, and as we spoke about in the introduction, it really is about this, this interwoven, this inextricable relationship uh, of you and your mother, but, but how these histories come together in many ways. To what extent did your mother's, the darkness of, of what she lives through um, with the Holocaust, was that shadow there through your own childhood? I know it's strange to say, but I don't feel like it was. And I know it is for many people of my generation. Somebody asked me about intergenerational trauma and I feel like in my existence there's intergenerational joy because I come from a people who were resilient and joyous and lived life to the fullest. And I think that was heavily passed down to me. It's not to say that her experiences didn't impact me at all. I think that Sometimes the world feels really scary and that is probably a product of coming from her. But the way she related her experiences weren't this traumatic way, the way she passed them on to me. She spoke really matter-of-factly when she was asked, but nor did she bring up her experiences as a matter of course. There are some survivors who spoke incessantly about their backgrounds, not many, Many more said none, nothing at all. And she was in neither group. She was happy to talk if pressed, but she found a way, I think, to put it in its spot so that it didn't affect her life. And even now with my book out, I've had people who've known her, my friend's parents, 
all for, for you know many many decades who didn't know that she was in the Holocaust. Wow. So I wonder how much. I mean, you have obviously the greatest love and respect for her. Right? You can feel the warmth and the connection that you have with your mum. And what your thoughts are there just in general terms around how we navigate trauma and pain? We don't want to ignore it. We don't want to carry it like a burden that overwhelms us. And it sounds like you're saying she, you, you, you believe she found some some halfway there or does or was she more put it to the side I think in terms of her pain she didn't dwell on the past she just never looked backwards she was a forwards thinking person and she always spoke about the future she had to live not the past that she had to mourn so that was I think really her main thing but she was such a sunny personality and part of why I wrote this book was I felt like she could offer an almost template for people to live by in the hardest of times. She really felt that even when there were times of unfathomable darkness, you had to look for the light peering beneath. And if you couldn't find that light, if you just couldn't see it, you then had to light the way yourself with your own essence. I only came to realise all that in that form when I put it down. But one of the catalysts for me writing the book was I would go for walks during COVID with a friend of mine whose husband had received a terrible diagnosis at the beginning of COVID. And she would always want to hear my mother Mira's stories. And she always wanted to know that you could live through something terrible and not only survive and get through, but actually flourish and thrive and live a life where you impacted others with your joy. And then I think she also wanted to always hear about all these strange things that I write about, these inexplicable things that I felt happened in my mother's life that to me pointed to something bigger. I don't know what it is, or I don't spell it out at least in the book, but it's this feeling that there's more to the universe than just us walking on the planet this second, that you have to believe in something bigger, whether it's something actual or just your hope for something bigger, your aspirations in terms of faith and what you want to do in the world. Mm. How did they show up for your mum? I know you've got multiple examples of, do you call it premonition? Do you call it intuition? Sometimes, I guess, grand coincidences. (laughs) So the one story I think that really shakes people that I've written about is that I'm from my parents' second marriage. And when my mother got married the first time, it was just after the war, she was only 19. And she and her husband, who were both Holocaust survivors, were living in Prague in in Slovakia and had nothing. So they're trying to assemble artefacts and heirlooms that will make their house a home. And in doing so, they went to, I'm not sure where, a pawn shop, an antique shop one day and bought a set of secondhand prayer books. So they carried these prayer books, a set of five or six, I'm not sure, around with them whenever they lived in other places. They lived from there, they lived in Antwerp, they lived in Milan, then they lived in Paris for 10 years, and finally they made it to Australia. When they were in Australia, they eventually divorced, and my mother met my father, Manny. And so this is many decades after the war. My mother has carried these prayer books with her from place to place. And One day my father goes to synagogue and he can't find his own prayer book and he asks my mother if he can borrow hers. She gives one to him, he picks it up. It's a black leather bound book with embossed gold initials on the front 
and he looks at it immediately startled. He opens up the pages and flips them, turns back to the cover again and he says, see these initials on the front, S-U? That was my father, Shalom Unreich. These machzors, these prayer books belong to my father. And they were, he recognised those prayer books and his parents were killed in Auschwitz. And so somehow these prayer books had travelled all these countries and all these decades to end up in the rightful owner's hand once again. Wow. Intuition and, and premonition and, and even the supernatural sort of feature through the book strongly. Is that something that you experience in your own life? I think I, my mother always felt that her mother was, was with her even after she'd passed away, that the spirit of her mother was looking after her and she felt that keenly. I didn't always believe that myself sometimes, but I've come to believe it. I don't always feel my mother around me, sometimes really rarely, but I do occasionally. And for me, I'm not trying to impose my belief system on anyone else because for me, this is a story about faith and I don't mean religious faith. I mean faith in the possibility that tomorrow will be better than today, faith in a future, faith in humanity. My mother's faith in humanity was one of her biggest lessons and one of the main starting points of this book was I was so puzzled by one of her responses when she was interviewed by the Melbourne Holocaust Museum. She'd given a long testimony in which she detailed all of her experiences and she'd been through four concentration camps herself, including Auschwitz, and she'd been on a death march and she had just experienced the worst. She had seen killings and rapes and terrible things. And at the end of it, the interviewer said to her, what do you think saved you? What, what did you learn? And she said, the goodness of people. And she said it to me all my life. In the Holocaust, I learned about the goodness of people. And at the time when I heard that, I was completely flummoxed. How can you directly witness man's cruelty and not focus on that? But instead, she actually did remember all those people, and there were many, many, many Jewish and non-Jewish alike who intervened, who spoke up, who hid her, who saved her, who made her life and her well-being a priority. And she never forgot those people. And so to me, it is a lesson for our times that in the bleakest of times, you just cannot forget man's humanity. And woman's. Well, I mean, when I say man, I mean, I mean all but, genders. Yeah, of course. You, you say your mum's sort of not with you or in a, some, I don't know, otherworldly way, but in the book your mum talks about the fact that sometimes if she was lying awake at night and she had whirring thoughts that she would get this sense of well-being wash over her and she felt like her own mother had come to her. How important was your grandmother, who of course was also lost in the Holocaust, in your upbringing? Did your mum talk about her a lot and bring her to life for you so you had that multi-generational sisterhood or womanhood passing down? Yeah, it's a good question. I think she brought her to life most of all. So my grandmother, Genia, had a really strong impression of her, that she was essentially a shy and quiet woman who would go red at the drop of a hat but who was so warm and loving and sewed beautiful clothes for her children and herself and really loved her husband. They had a very, very strong romantic love affair. 
Um, what wasn't as clear were the other members of her family who I had never known. And writing this book, I brought them to life as well. And some of that was actually hard. Writing about some of them because I didn't know them before was the hardest. Just I'd come to know them and love them and suddenly to write about their demise and in the worst ways was that that was probably the hardest part of writing the book. But I would try to balance those for the reader too with bits from the present or bits from my childhood so that there's relief for the reader as well. And even though I know the Holocaust is one of the themes of this book, it's not the only theme. It starts out about with my mother's life pre-war and really focuses a lot on her life in Paris afterwards and then in Australia. And I think at the end of it, you don't feel depressed and grim. You feel uplifted and inspired by her. That's the feeling I get from readers who've contacted me. Well, that light shines through. I think you get that sense of this goodness it's there even even in the telling of, of the dark the dark things. How did you recreate that history? How did you access records or what was your process really for trying to build this family history again for this book? Well, I really wanted to make sure I accessed as much information as possible. One, because I'm a journalist and two, because it's so easy to poke holes for some people in Holocaust testimonies and if you don't get it accurate, then I just don't want to leave that possibility open for anyone. So I did my best to really verify as much as I could. I started with my mother's testimonies. So she gave two to the Melbourne Holocaust Museum, which were each several hours. And then the author, Elliot Perlman, who's a friend of mine, interviewed her for another eight or so hours. And finally, I interviewed her in the last six months of her life about everything, not actually setting out to ask her about the Holocaust, but more to ask her who she was as a person. And then I went on to deal with all the museums who deal with this in the world, in Los Angeles, Israel, Australia, Slovakia. I looked up, I went to genealogy sites and tried to find descendants. I spoke to foundations and um, museums like the Auschwitz Museum and the Plushav Museum and historians and academics from all over the world helped me, literally. And so much so that I ended up finding a testimony of somebody who's at the start of the book who I don't want to um, expose it to the story too much because it is a he becomes impactful in my family in a great way. But he's an escapee from Treblinka at the very beginning of the book. And his family didn't know that there was any testimony that he'd ever given. As far as they knew, he hadn't. And so they didn't know his story. And I managed to, through a long trail find a handwritten Hebrew document in Yad Vashem in Israel, which then led me to an archive in, the, in Maryland in the United States, which unlocked a testimony that he had given in wartime that not even many historians knew about. So it felt really gratifying to find these things. And I found out things about my mother that she didn't even know in her lifetime. So, for instance, when she arrived at Auschwitz, she was the subject of a selection, which is when a Nazi officer would say, you in this group, you in that group. One group goes to live and the other group goes to their deaths. She didn't know that she had encountered that, but there's a record of it. And nor did she know that the infamous Dr Joseph Mengele, a hideous 
person in the Holocaust was the person doing the choosing. So she had no idea, as far as I know, that she met him. Wow. And when you were interviewing your mum, with what angle did you share with her? Were you talking about writing a book? Were you talking about learning for yourself? Were you wanting to honour her? You've talked about how she sees the goodness in humanity. How did you couch these conversations? Well, I did it with none of those objectives in mind. When I did it, it was when she was six months before her death. And having been this person of light and joy and ever-present smile, some of that light started to fade and dwindle. She, her voice changed, that sing-songy voice I described became duller, her pallor changed, and you could see everything was harder. And my brother Fred suggested I interviewed her, in, interview her just as a way to distract her from her illness, not to really, I wasn't thinking about using it as material. At the time, I thought I really knew, knew everything there was to know about her. So I sat down with no objective, asking her everything from the complete mundane. What, did, what was life growing up like? What did you used to have for breakfast? Did you have a pet? To then eventually the more serious and really introspective questions where I asked her, what were your values? What did your parents teach you? What was your biggest regret? What was your biggest joy? And what I realised, and you'd probably know this too, we don't sit down with our parents very often to ask them those things. We really don't. We take it for granted that we do know their stories and we don't try to find out how they became to be and what they really feel. And that was the most unexpected thing. I describe it in the book as these, this moment of not just the brutality of her illness, but the beauty of our conversation. And I said it was like going away on a mother-daughter holiday for one last time where we got to laugh and cry and love each other fiercely. It was such an important thing to do. And I really urge everyone to do it with their parents. And if their parents have passed, then write down everything you remember on paper because those memories will mean something to future generations, to some extent more than even the biography of a person. Yeah, sometimes you don't know what's of interest to you or what to ask a parent until that becomes relatable to you. So a basic example would be you wouldn't ask your mother about childbirth when you were 15 because you haven't thought about childbirth yourself. So across the lifespan, often it's later in life that we want to have these conversations and sometimes as you say then it's too late my own mother who's still alive has just um, completed over a year a process called story worth mm. and story do you know story yeah, worth? I do. I, I've, my partner's done it with his mum okay and so she, um, for those listeners who don't know you choose a question each week to answer and you record it in as much detail or as little detail as you like and at the end of the year you get a published book that comes back to you with and she's she's you know included regrets and um, dreams and learnings and it, it's extraordinary it's an extraordinary um, simpler version of what you're describing but more accessible more, maybe more accessible than for someone and who doesn't cap capture history I suppose that's one of the things here that you've done not just hers but all these missing fragments of history that hadn't been captured yet and, and brought together to make this extraordinary, well, these brilliant lives that, that you have in the book. Um, one of the things that comes up in there, of course, is your mother's boundless optimism or, or goodness, um, looking for the goodness and light in things, um, but also this notion of bittersweet. 
Do you think that one has to experience darkness to see the light? I think that one emphasises the other. I wouldn't like to think that everybody has to experience the depths of despair before they can experience great happiness, and I'd hope most people are spared by that. But perspective is a great changer in life. I think it does make you look at things completely differently when you've got a comparison. And I have a story like that in my own life where I had a terrible car accident in Thailand, which I write about in the book. And afterwards I said to my mother um, how upset I was and how angry that this had happened. And she was trying to be philosophical and my leg was very injured. And she said, oh, well, you'll never wear a mini skirt again. And I said, but I, I want to wear a mini skirt. And then I realised that I had seen my legs as quite flawed when they were fine and I hadn't worn a mini skirt anyway. And instead of now looking at my legs as something to be ashamed of because they had a big scar, I decided to look at them as a badge of honour, as these things that had gotten me through life that could still function incredibly, that had survived this awful accident and were so strong and beautiful because they did have this scar and they were intact. And I probably had a much better perspective about them later and a much better view of them later than I did before the accident. So I think it can put it into perspective. My mother certainly valued family and treasured just the ability to be, to be able to observe the tenets of her Jewish religion, to be able to light the candles on a Sabbath, to be able to observe her religion freely and go to synagogue. But to have a family and to share with family times, she rejoiced in all the moments, the small and the big. When you hear people tell you their hard luck stories that com we, we talk about comparison being the thief of joy, but if you hear someone's story and they're saying, it's just, it was just horrendous, it was horrendous, you know, I broke my fingernail, I'm being facetious, but they're sharing a story of their hard times do you ever think that's not that's not hard? How do you how do you process or hear whether it's your children, your partner, people close to you as well, their form of suffering and accept it? I think if you judge other people's pain, you are not being empathetic in that moment. And I write about that in the book where at one point I'm complaining about I can't remember what anymore. But I said to my mother, how can you stand me? Like, how, how can you handle, when everything you've gone through, how can you even bear to listen to me whinging about this? Because I was moaning and she was comforting me. And she said, pain is pain. Your pain is your pain. And my pain was my pain. But you don't sit there and compare them. You're, you hopefully try to be empathetic to anybody's pain. Mm. That's not to say you can't like I was saying before, give them some perspective maybe if that's valid, but often it's not. If somebody's deeply upset, they're upset for a reason and it's your job if you're a friend or a family member to try and work out why, I think. I like to say that when we're, when we're in a hard time and we're lying, lying face down in water, some of us are lying in a swimming pool, some of us are lying in an ocean, some of us are lying in a puddle, but we're still face down in the water, the magnitude of and the depth of that struggle, as you say, is, is often not relevant in that moment to that person. A hundred percent. Well, and how could you, I mean, if you triage everyone's pain, then how would you ever stack up against unimaginable pain and loss, which, you know, which your mother has, has gone through? You've detailed so many scenes 
from Mira's past in this book and of your own. It's part memoir of you observing her and understanding her. Which scene of her life sticks with you the most? Hmm. In terms of what I've written in the book, I just remember how kind of kind and fun she was. So there's a little scene, it's a tiny scene, it's certainly not on the spectrum of scenes, something really pivotal, but when I was little I decided to create a perfume shop one day in my front garden and she helped me along and gave me empty bottles and I was putting bubble bath and olive oil and gosh knows what else in the in those vials and then I had maybe no sales maybe one sale at the end and then she bought them all and she sprayed them on her wrist and she sniffed it and she said extravagantly how beautiful this is and so I really remember her joy her ability to laugh there is she she was so happy for me to make a joke at her expense and certainly my early writing days I wrote a lot of humorous Jewish mother articles and she no one laughed harder than she did she really knew how to enjoy life and I write about how often we would be double with those kind of laughers where you double over laughing and no sound comes out you know when you laugh really hard and she did that a lot she had hilarious sayings all the time I remember when I I studied law and I started getting published when I was at the end of second year law at the age of 20 and she was really scared I think that I would give up my law degree so when I proudly showed her my first article and she wanted to temper my excitement she said a bird in the hand is worth more than a cow on the roof. <laughs> I thought, what does that mean exactly? And we just laughed and laughed and laughed. And I think of her crazy expressions and the way she would say them. And uh, so many of those things come to mind, just how she really lived, how she'd play cards with my father. They played red aces with their friends and entertained in big groups. And you just hear this enormous well of laughter coming from those rooms. How did your parents meet? They were friends with the same Czechoslovakian group in Melbourne. So they moved in the same crowd. And when my mother's first husband left Australia, my father took over the business that he had, which my, which my mother was in. Oh. And so they worked together in a shirt manufacturing business in Melbourne. Wow. And then the books, the prayer books came to be discovered once they were married yes decades later i think even then Mm. how do some of these beautiful um, learnings and ways of being that your mother instilled in in you uh show up in your children i can see actually a lot of my mother anyway in my children my son's curiosity to learn and his appetite for the world my daughter's sweet nature and the way she also wakes up singing Mm -hmm. But I think that we've learned that it's really important to be a strong family unit and to nurture each other within that and to help other people too. One of the things I remember about my mother was her kindness, how I couldn't go down Carlisle Street in Melbourne without her in the car picking up somebody and giving them a lift home or she'd see somebody struggling and always trying to help. And I do always try to tell my children that, that it is really important to make a mark, whether it's just a small one or a bigger one. 
And it is incredible because so many people have come up to me since my book's been out who recognise my mother's name and just say she was so kind to me. Because it's actually the way we behave, not the words, isn't it, that you're remembering and that these people are remembering. So we can teach our children what they should or shouldn't do or should or shouldn't say, but it's through picking up the stranger in Carlisle Street yeah. that the message is sent. This is this is how we behave. Yeah, and every time I see my children help an older person or somebody younger than them and be patient with them and just spend that extra time I feel really grateful and I know that's probably my mother more than me <laughs> hopefully a bit of me too you mentioned some of the key phrases that your mum used to use what are some others because those are the kinds of things that I think we can use as reminders in our own lives what were some of her one-liners well she used to say which her father said help yourself and God will help you and it's not so much a phrase about God per se. So it's okay for atheists to say this too. What it just means is don't wait for somebody to rescue you, to save you, to intervene. You be the person. You have to be the one that saves yourself, that takes steps and takes the initiative. And I even feel like I did this a little bit with my book because I was complaining so much during COVID of all my journalism work drying up and I'd never work again, feeling very sorry for myself. And my brother, who is an ex-publisher, said to me, just write the book, write the book you've been talking about. Like, you've got to actually, you want to change things, you've got to do it. And that was definitely one of the things that stuck in my mind when I started. You can't just sit there and wait for you know, your fortunes to change. Mm. You have to change them yourself. And it was Dolphy in the book who said, help yourself. Yes. Wasn't and it, it is, that was your, your grandfather. That said often, I think, in in other families too. Mm. It's don't be a victim. You're in the driver's seat. You can make the change. And it helped my mother a lot through the Holocaust too when she took risks and stood up at the risk of peril, but did so because she felt she had no other choice. Hmm. Do you think she'd like this book? Well, she was a very proud parent. There's four of us. She had four children and she made us all feel like we were wonderful. And I think she was incredibly proud. She would think, why is this fuss being made about me? She was really humble and she wouldn't have thought that her story was any more unique than other people's or even other Holocaust survivors. But I think she really loved writing and reading too. She really had respect for the written word and I think she would have loved the whole thing. And she would have loved one of the things in this book that I've tried to write about is how the four of our siblings came together as a unit in my mother's last two years. So she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and it was her wish to die at home. And along the way, she really needed a lot of help to live her life the way she wanted to. And we just all stepped up, I feel. We all had our little roles that we did and we all came and did them together and it just made us tighter and even more tight since she's passed away. And I think that she would really be so gladdened by that. In opening up this story and understanding in its totality what your mum lived through and her family, what responsibility has that thrust on you if any and has it changed your intent for how you want to live? I think I definitely thought there was a responsibility to put the history down because I started to realise that with the history not down on paper even though it's there in a museum in her audible testimony it just gets lost and 
there is so much hatred in the world. I really feel like understanding and education is the key. So that was definitely one motivation. And I just guess I felt a responsibility on a personal level as her daughter not to let her be forgotten. Mm. Yeah, we have this saying in Jewish law, when somebody dies, you say, may their memory be a blessing. And what that actually means is that if somebody's not around to do good deeds, you then do the good deeds that they would have and it's as if they were living. And I guess I feel an extension of that, that I want her, the memory of her to do good in the world, to be a blessing for other people and help them. And for people who are listening who are in their own dark time for whatever reason, what's something that they might call upon now apart from calling your mother? <laughs> I think her her hope and her faith in the world. So the thing that I write about towards the end that was really meaningful to me was she used to write the most effusive birthday cards to all of us and they'd be two pages long, beautiful language and they'd be very specific about all the things she loved and all the things she hoped for us. And on one particular birthday before she died, I was feeling really low in my life. Lots of things weren't going right. And so in the midst of this birthday card of greetings, she wrote in capital letters, the happiness is near with an exclamation mark. And at the time, I think I dismissed it. I thought, what is this? Is this a prediction? Is this a prophecy? I don't know what she means. It's just another of the things she says. I'll forget it. But after her death, I reread those words and I really, they really stood out to me. They were in capital letters for starters. And I thought the happiness is near. What she means is the happiness is always near. It's always close to you. You might not see it, but you have to believe in it. You might have to reach it because it doesn't fall upon you, but you have to have the courage to grab it. And so now I really think of those words always when I need them, the happiness is near. It is not a prediction. It's an actuality. In present time for all of us. Exactly. Yeah. There's so much wisdom that has been passed down through the Holocaust. When I think of other books written, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, Eddie Jacko's Happiest Man on Earth, to me they're the, the greatest tombs of wisdom that have been written. What are your thoughts on that? Those are two well-known ones, but how has this devastation been the source of such wisdom and hope and gratitude and joy. I tend to think that survivors to survive, you need to, to have two things to survive. Your body needed to be able to survive, but your mind needed to be able to survive as well. So I definitely think, probably not for everyone, but for so many, there was a theme of resilience and of pushing through and being able to see to the other side that was present in them all. I think they all felt compelled to not forget what had happened to them and they did that in, in various ways and certainly those who are great artists like Elie Wiesel and Primo Levi put their words down in paper, on paper for future generations. But I think as, as a people we have that potential to be resilient and we have that potential to have gratitude all the time. Sometimes we need great reminders of those things but these people had those reminders at the ready at all time and I just think that's what got them through and they never took life for granted afterwards they just 
were so glad to be alive and to contribute. And so many of those people, you see it in the fabric of Melbourne and, and in Australia. Australia had the largest population of post-Holocaust Jewry per capita outside of Israel. And you see how much so many of those people have contributed to philanthropy, to education, to the field of medicine, to the arts. And you hope that they're, not only their lessons remain, but their imprint remains as well. Mm. We like to ask all of our guests this question, but it seems like we shouldn't with you because we know the answer, well, at least one of it. So we always like to ask, um, given life's complexity and challenge, who do you think is doing human well? I think there are so many examples of that now, but I do turn to someone who's no longer with us, and I mentioned him before, the writer and Nobel Peace Prize winner, Elie Wiesel, who wrote a series of books about the Holocaust, which had great impact. But more than that, he was a great human and humanitarian. And I wrote to him when I was living in New York in the 1990s. It remains to date the only fan letter I've ever sent to an author. And I wrote him about my mother's experiences and what his books had meant to me, particularly Night. And he wrote back to me, handwritten on his Boston University letterhead, and wrote his feelings about my mother's story. And to me, it was almost his talisman saying, Godspeed, giving me permission to write about my mother's story. And I think about somebody like that who had, you know, so many people would have wanted his time. And he took the time just to write to me a person in a really personal way, not just doing good for the world, but I know he did well as a father and he did well, obviously, when you just reached out to him as well. That's the, those are the people I look up to, the ones who not only make a great impact but make a great personal impact too. Mm. It's a beautiful story. It, it's a powerful... It, as you said at the outset, Rochelle, it's so much more than a Holocaust story and more than a family story. It's a story of humanity at large doing human well. Thanks for sharing. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Human Cogs. We hope that this conversation has led you to think a little bit differently about yourself and those around you. And thank you for all the amazing feedback that we get about these conversations. If you do like Human Cogs and what we're doing, we would love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. What that means is we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well. well.